I think with that, you've really got to remember that you're a great applicant and the fact that you're not getting stuff might not be because of you. It might be because of these systems which aren't designed with you in mind. So you really have to kind of stand tall in who you are and really believe that your neurodivergency is a strength, it's not a weakness. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place with them. Through the University of Law's pro bono programme, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. Stephanie, what is one of the biggest challenges that you face when writing law essays at university? Well, Camilla, it takes such a long time to gain a deep understanding of the area of law I'm focusing on and to work out what the key arguments are in order to critically analyse the topic. It often involves spending countless hours reading lots of books. I just wish there was a simpler way. It's funny you say that because our awesome sponsor, Bloomsbury Publishing, has a book series called Great Debates in Law, which explores the key debates and controversies in different areas of the law, all written by experts in their field. That sounds perfect. Where can I find out more about this book series? Head over to bloomsbury.com and for a limited time only, they are offering listeners of the podcast 20% off any book in the series by using the code GREATDEBATES20 and you can find the details in the description box of the podcast. Welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast Series. My name's Camilla and I'm a future trainee solicitor and current LPC student at the University of Law. Today, we're delighted to be joined on the show by Amelia Platten, who is founder of the Neurodiverse Lawyer Project, winner of the Legal Cheek Award 2022 for Best Use of Social Media. And in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the Neurodiverse Lawyer Project, why Amelia set it up, hopefully providing some general tips for neurodiverse students, as well as shining a light on neurodiversity. So without further ado, let's welcome Amelia onto the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Amelia. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, no, no, not at all. It's, it's, it's really great to have you here. And congratulations on your recent win. I know I just mentioned it in the um, in the introduction, but really congratulations for the Legal Cheek Award. 
Thank you. It was uh, it came as quite a surprise actually, because um, there's so many other amazing people nominated, but um, I'm really thankful to be put up for the win. So yeah, <laughs> huge congratulations. Okay, so before we get started with the um, episode, I thought perhaps you could start by introducing yourself and explaining a bit about where you currently are in terms of your legal career. Yeah. Um, so hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. So uh, like Camilla said, my name is Amelia. I'm 23, proud northerner. I don't know if that's important. feels like it is. Um, last September, I graduated from the University of Leeds uh, with a first class law degree. I also did a placement year at a law firm between my penultimate and final year. After having, um, I guess, what you would describe as some struggles uh, with entering the legal sector, which I'm sure we'll get into later, uh, as a result of the fact that I am autistic and dyspraxic, I set up the Neurodiverse Lawyer Project. um, And about a month back, I found out that I am a future trainee. Um, So, yeah, that's just a little summary of me. Brilliant. Thank you for um, going into that. And congratulations on your training contract as well. Thank you. (laughs) And so perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the Neurodiverse Lawyer Project for anyone who hasn't yet heard about it. Uh, Yeah, so I set it up as an Instagram talking about my personal experience as a neurodivergent aspiring lawyer after I had faced some discrimination in interviews um, around seven months ago. Within a few weeks, it had really, really picked up traction um, and I was getting loads and loads of messages from other neurodivergent people and a lot of people had faced really similar things that I had or even worse things. Therefore, I thought I would transition it into something that actively sought to both support and empower neurodivergent lawyers and aspirees and also encourage firms to change policies and wider culture to better accommodate neurodivergent people, um, or at least, at the very least, put it on their diversity and inclusion agenda. Um, I now have a team of, I think, over 50 wonderful volunteers who fit under five divisions that we have. Our Instagram has over 18,000 followers. We have a podcast, the Neurodiverse Lawyer Podcast, Um, where we interview neurodivergent lawyers about their experiences and firms on their approach. Uh, We also have a website and blog where we do a similar thing. And we have a guidebook coming out to support neurodivergent aspiring lawyers that covers literally everything from university to junior employment and covers topics like mental health, mitigating circumstances, DSA, all the way to things like disclosure applications um, and reasonable adjustments. We are currently in the process of transitioning into an incorporated charitable organisation, that's a mouthful, um, where we'll be starting um, what we're currently terming um, the NDLP Index, which tracks changes firms are making for neurodivergent inclusion in real terms rather than in corporate speak. It puts all their collaborations with us, so for example, on podcasts and blogs and on the Instagram in one place. Um, and it also offers specific tips for neurodivergent people wanting to apply to that specific firm. Um, and they can also utilize our neuroreverse mentoring, which is where our network provides feedback to the firm on their disability uh, inclusion policies. Um, Everything that we do is extremely based on the personal experiences of neurodivergent people at that firm um, and also in the wider workplace. 
we really do like to kind of shy away from, like I said, the corporate speak and the tokenism and stuff like that. Um, and it's the first of its kind. So, yeah, look out for that. Um, but that's just a kind of a summary of, of what we do. Brilliant. Thank you so much um, for explaining. And I really I think that the rapid growth that the neurodiverse lawyer project has seen just goes to show how much it, it was needed yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I think I think that's really powerful. Um, and I just wanted to drill down actually into the term neurodiverse. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to explain what that exactly means? Um, because I I think that yeah, some people might not know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's kind of three main terms that are used in this area, and I think, like you say, a lot of people get confused between them all. So there's neurodiverse. Um, which essentially means the same as neurodiversity, um, which is essentially the diversity and variation of cognitive functioning in people. So it's essentially about kind of celebrating everyone because everyone has a unique brain and therefore have different skills, abilities and needs, etc. Um, and it's generally thought of as much wider than neurodivergence. So neurodiverse and neurodiversity can also include neurotypical people um, who are people that don't have neurodivergence, which I will get into in a second, um, because they may everyone has a unique brain. Basically, there's no other way to put it. Compare that with neurodivergent, which is an umbrella term um, that refers to cognitive functioning, which is not considered typical. Um, So it's a little bit more narrow, but there are quite a lot of conditions within it. So the ones you would think of like autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, etc. But also things like acquired neurodivergency, Tourette's, BPD, epilepsy, etc. But the main difference is neurodivergent is the correct term for people that have these conditions that a lot of people think of when they say neurodiverse. The reason I use neurodiverse is um, because I think neurodiversity and celebrating everybody's unique brain is important. Um, but I do advocate predominantly for neurodivergent people, as confusing as that is, but that is a summary. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I, I didn't know the difference between the two. Um, yeah, so thanks for, for going into that. And why did you decide to set up the project? I know you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but perhaps if you could maybe go into a bit more detail. Yeah, Um, there's a variety of reasons, really. Um, And probably the main one, when I first started, there wasn't kind of a calculated reason. It was just because I'd been through an interview process where, again, my reasonable adjustments hadn't been put in um, and my feedback related pretty much to my neurodivergent traits. Um, At that time, I only knew I was dyspraxic. I didn't know I was autistic, Um, but nevertheless, it related to that. Um, And I just felt quite lonely. No one really spoke about it that much, especially on the more kind of junior lawyer side. I saw no one like me in senior positions. Um, And it just leads you to think, okay, do neurodivergent people really have a place within the legal sector? and then obviously things like discrimination and, and I think just wider ignorance around neurodivergency in the sector is quite common. Um, and then, like I said, no one in the social media space. And I just kind of saw a niche um, and went for it, so to speak. But originally it was much more about just sharing my personal experience and, and trying to see if anyone else had a similar experience. Um, and it turns out that they did. 
Um, in terms of kind of wider issue, I think most people are aware nowadays that there is quite a lot of diversity and inclusion gaslighting that goes on. Um, so what I mean by that is firms claiming that they are inclusive um, when in fact they are not putting in inclusionary processes within the firm. Um, and that applies to recruitment as well, because you see that, you know, they've called themselves inclusive or a great employer for disabled people and then you get into the assessment center and they can't put in a basic reasonable adjustment um you start to doubt yourself and you start to just believe that it's your fault when it's not the wider issue of course is is figures like three percent of solicitors are disabled 50 percent of managers would be uncomfortable hiring someone who is autistic and i think it's the general figure is like 27 percent for people who are um wider neurodivergent 22 percent of autistic people are in employment um, only 20% of firms have a future diversity and inclusion plan for neurodivergency versus I think it's like 96% for other protected characteristics. And it's just not talked about. I think it's been pushed under the rug, so to speak, um, for far too long now. And most people just don't realise the extent of the problem. Um, but the figures don't really lie in that regard. And if you want to learn more about that, I would really recommend going to read The Legally Disabled and The Law Society's um, research um, on disability in the legal sector because it sets out a whole lot better than I've just done there. Um, but that is kind of a, a general summary of why I decided to set it up. Great. And, and what I'll do, I'll find links to those um, resources that you just mentioned and I'll leave them in the description box of the podcast as well. So yeah. if anyone does want to go and, and, and read more about that, then, then they can do so. Um, so what was your experience like when applying for training contracts and how did your neurodiversity impact your journey? Um, it was interesting. Um, I think getting a training contract is hard. We all know that. Um, and it's hard enough when you're not grappling with something that is completely misunderstood. Um, like I said, most of my reasonable adjustments when I went to assessment centres were not put in. Um, and I constantly got kind of like comments like, how do you expect to do this with this condition? Why aren't you looking at me? Why are your eyes over there, etc.? And there's just general ignorance, I think, around neurodivergency and a lot of um, lack of knowledge, I think, a lot of the time about it. I think there's there's various parts here that I can't put on the firm, um, but might have been caused by the wider sector. Um, so, for example, I lacked a lot of confidence because I didn't think firms would want me. Um, so I really tried to hide that part of me. Um, and that really, I think, made my applications quite generic. Um, and it wasn't really me and I wasn't really selling myself. I was obviously then limited in terms of experience as well, because obviously, you know, being autistic, um, that you struggle with kind of like social elements and social communication. It's different. Um, and therefore getting involved in things at university is quite difficult. And then dyspraxia obviously affects kind of my processing, but also my motor movements. And so getting involved in sports and kind of like arts, hobbies and stuff like that is all really, really difficult. And so I just had to start kind of creating my own experience and looking for roles which were much more independent. So two things that I did was obviously I set up this Instagram, but that was after I graduated. During um, my degree, I would do things like I was course representative in my final year, um, which was quite an autonomous role. Um, and also it was all remote, obviously, because it was lockdown. 
Um, but things like that, I had to look for kind of alternative things. I couldn't just take up everything that was there for me. Um, and then finally, I think it's kind of like the inconsistent goals. So when you're neurodivergent, um, a lot of the time you will hyper-focus or you'll have a special interest, um, particularly if you're autistic, um, on a certain topic. So mine was company law. I got top module prize in company law. It's my favourite topic. Um, but certain other topics like land law, I had no interest in. And it's not so easy when you're neurodivergent to motivate yourself to like certain things and to put in the effort equally across all of your modules um, and also there's things like because I was undiagnosed autistic um, it was you know my mental health is not great I'm just going to be uh, candid there um, and it meant that often I would have to take kind of like weeks out of university which now I realize is autistic burnout um, but at the time um, I didn't know what it was and so I just thought that would push me down um, but the thing is, I did end up with a first. I did end up with a good variety of experiences. Um, I do feel like I had to work harder than I should have done um, to achieve that. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. Um, and again, with the training contract process, that all kind of put me a little bit down. Um, it was only when I kind of gathered the confidence through the project and through advocating for myself that I started to pick up confidence to put some of this stuff in the mitigating circumstances box um, and really just sell myself as a person, sell my skills and the impact that I've made um, rather than just trying to kind of be very generic and write what I thought they wanted and hiding part of myself. Um, so that's gone a little bit away from the question, but yeah, I think it was definitely more difficult than it should have had to have been, um, but I made it eventually. And I, I think it's just a process of, of finding the confidence to go through, unfortunately, at the moment. Um, but I'm really hoping that's going to start to change soon. Yeah, I think you raised some really um, important points there, especially around being yourself and how key mm. that is to actually being successful. And then yeah. what goes hand in hand with that is confidence. And then the confidence might not be there if if people aren't talking about um, mm. you know, uh, di a diverse range of of uh, people and they're not being represented yeah. in the legal industry. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, so many important points that you touched on there and hopefully mm -hmm. raising awareness will help to um, at least, yeah, create more visibility, hopefully empower more people yeah. and then um, hopefully have a, an Im impact on, on the wider legal industry. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think, you know, we've got to see the people there um, and people have to have to unfortunately fight for it a little bit, I think, at the moment. Um, and, and to do that, unfortunately, we've got to have people in those roles who are willing to advocate. Um, and, and, you know, that shouldn't be our responsibility. But I think it it kind of is at the moment. It's not our responsibility, but it kind of inadvertently becomes it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think people, but, some yeah. people just find it easier to speak out if others have done it before. Yeah, definitely. So I think people are, are naturally worried in a very competitive space anyway, that if they speak out and say something negative about firms, that they will immediately be looked down upon and it will, you know, push them to the back of the queue, so to speak, in terms of getting a training contract. But actually, for me, speaking up and standing up for myself was really the only way that I got a training contract. 
Um, and I think that's unfortunate because I shouldn't have to do that. But yeah, um, it, it, it did work. And I think that, so my next question is, well, I think I already sort of know the answer to the first part of it. But <laughs> do you think that law firms are doing enough to embrace mm-hmm. those who are neurodivergent um, during the vacation scheme and training contract application process? Or do you think more that could be more could be done? And if so, what um, do you think could be done by firms? Yeah, um, I think you've you've cracked it on the head. The short answer is no. Um, and that's not even controversial. Most firms are well aware that they need to do more and they're not doing enough at the moment. Um, I think the trouble is that a lot of these processes were not built with neurodivergent people in mind and they mostly assessed for neurotypical attributes. So what I mean by that is obviously I, as an autistic person, have quite a different communication style. Um, And therefore, if I'm being raided on communication based on a criteria that fits around norms of communication, I'm not going to fulfill that. Um, And so you can, you can, you know, firms can advocate for wanting difference. um, But if they continually recruit the same people, which often they do, um, it's very difficult to say that, Um, you know, reasonable adjustments and mitigating circumstances comes some way in circumventing this but I do think um you know in my opinion anyway that it doesn't rid us of all the issues there's a lot of tokenism as I've mentioned that goes on um and disability diversity gaslighting that goes on to ensure that it's not well publicized that there's an issue um but when you see figures and when you see kind of the the research that the law society and legally stable came out with um, it's quite clear. And then even where neurodivergent people do end up kind of slipping through the cracks, so to speak, it involves so much extra work in comparison to a neurotypical person. And it just shouldn't be that way. We really, really need to see firms being proactive, reaching out to people, asking if they need stuff, um, having expertise so they know more reasonable adjustments than just extra time. Um, thinking about mitigation. Um, so what I mean by mitigation is obviously I can ask a firm not to judge me on things like eye contact, redesigning processes to, to stop excluding us. AI-based techniques are notoriously bad for judging um, neuroty- uh, neurodivergent people even, um, because again, they're often marking on things like um, whether you don't have gaps in your CV, um, but also AI-based kind of video interviewing Um, grades again on things like body language talking speed eye contact which is quite difficult particularly for uh, autistic people Um, the main thing I think will come down to flexibility and also trusting us when we say we need something you like I think to use kind of a a slightly crude analogy um, you can't test a fish by its ability to climb a tree um, and also not trust it when it say it can't I think the excuse there is that, you know, neurodivergency is not always visible. Um, I don't like the word invisible because I don't think my traits are invisible. I think you can see them quite clearly. Um, And I think often that's just used as a way to keep neurodivergent people invisible. Um, But a lawyer isn't one thing. And we really need to start seeing a change because they miss out on so many great applicants when they continually exclude us for very small things like this person didn't look at me during the interview and therefore they're not getting the job. Um, So I I think sometimes it's really simple and some things are, are a much 
broader um, cultural shift. Um, but hopefully we can start to see that happen soon. You know, things are happening, um, but just not quite at the pace that I would like yet. Before we get into the second half of the episode, I'd like to take this opportunity to talk about the sponsors of today's show and the law school that I chose to study my LPC at, and that's the University of Law. The University of Law believes in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. Their experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life experience from the start. They offer a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. And so what advice would you give to other aspiring lawyers who are neurodiverse and who are applying for training contracts at the moment? Yeah, I think the thing with this is no one really tells you how to do it. Um, And it's why I've kind of started to create all these templates online. um, So, you know, ask for reasonable adjustments to provide feedback because no one teaches you how to do this kind of thing. And I imagine to a lot of neurotypical people, um, asking for reasonable adjustments probably does not seem like such a complex thing, um, but actually there's a lot to it and it involves quite a lot of confidence to do it. Um, so in terms of tips for getting a training contract, I think the first one is, like I say, be firm. You may have to enforce things. Reasonable adjustments are not always put in um, or put in correctly. And you may occasionally have to provide feedback to the firm, say things weren't done right. Um, I always think one thing, example that I give people is the fact that I did my assessment centre twice, um, which is an unusual way of doing things I appreciate. Um, But essentially what happened was the first time around my reasonable adjustments weren't put in um, and then I sent through some feedback and I was given the opportunity to do it again. um, And obviously that time I got it. Um, But I wouldn't be where I am if I had not stood up for myself um, and said, you know, these things weren't put in correctly. I think with that, you've really got to remember that you're a great applicant and the fact that you're not getting stuff might not be because of you. It might be because of these systems which aren't designed with you in mind. So you really have to kind of stand tall in who you are and really believe that your neurodivergency is a strength. It's not a weakness. I think secondly, then it's just about selling yourself. Um, And again, that comes down to the fact that difference is a benefit. And arguably in terms of diversity, um, neurodivergent people are the most diverse in that sense, because, you know, my brain is physically different to a neurotypical person. Um, And also, obviously, neurodivergent people are as diverse um, as neurotypical people. And therefore, we all have different experiences in that regard as well. Um, In terms of selling yourself, it's just about showing where you've made uh, a real impact and that goes to neurotypical people as well. Um, But I think once you kind of pick up on and learn that skill of marking where you've made an impact, um, it becomes considerably easier to kind of create that, I hate this phrase, but personal brand of, you know, a couple of skills which almost like define you a little bit. And then finally, um, I think it comes down to what we were talking about before, which is don't be afraid to be yourself. 
you don't have to follow the same path as everyone else. I very much created my own. I didn't do a vacation scheme. I didn't really get involved with many societies at uni. I wasn't on any sports teams. Um, you know, I didn't take the, the standard path, so to speak. And if you look at everyone else as well, they're not all taking the same. And so just trying to kind of fit yourself into that rhetoric as a, as a neurodivergent person, you shouldn't do. It will just kind of erode your confidence and mental health. And so don't be afraid to kind of break away from the crowd and do things in a way that work for you. Um, but as kind of like three generic points, that would probably be my my advice at the moment. That's really great advice. Um, I So I saw one of your recent Instagram posts on how to use neurodivergence as a strength or advantage mm-hmm. on training contract applications. Could you maybe go into a bit, a bit more detail about that? Yeah, um, so a common question that I'm often asked is, can I talk about my neurodivergency? Does it all have to be positive? Will they look down on me, etc.? And like I said, the thing is, no one teaches you how to do this. And it's often extremely daunting to be so transparent about your neurodivergency um, on applications. So I decided to write a post on that. And I also did a podcast, which kind of mentioned it um, with another future trainee called Alice on um, my podcast. So in terms of that, what I often say is, obviously, I can't tell you that firms are not going to look down on neurodivergency because it happens. Um, But I would always say, be as transparent as possible. I always see my neurodivergency as a strength. And I think there's various parts of this, which we'll go into in a second. but it doesn't have to be a weakness. It doesn't have to be all about challenges. Um, you know, there are positives to it. Um, but equally, you don't have to, you know, sell yourself, sell your soul to the devil, so to speak, um, and completely go over any of the challenges that you faced. So I think there's a few ways you could do this. Firstly, um, I think is the obvious one, which is resilience. Um, and so most neurodivergent people will have faced additional Uh, hurdles to overcome from kind of educational hurdles to things in your personal life you know as as someone with dyspraxia like I can find very simple tasks quite difficult um, and that will create a certain level of resilience as you go along and I think that is probably the most common thing that people talk about on applications um, is that kind of level of resilience and ability to overcome and then there's kind of specific abilities um, which are directly linked to um, your neurodivergency. So there's things like hyperfocus, um, ability to research, um, special interests, etc., which is quite pertinent for me in my experience, say with company law, like I mentioned. Um, but I think the thing with that is to ensure that you're differentiating yourself from other neurodivergent people who are applying, you really have to ensure that you're linking it into your specific experiences and showing how that has led to you being proactive or led to you solving a problem or something like that. So really make sure that you are tailoring it back to you. Um, and then there's things like learn skills, again, through challenges. So you're probably likely to be quite a good problem think a solver um, because you probably think in a different way, but also because of all those challenges you face, you've probably had to find ways to overcome them. And occasionally, not, not even occasionally, quite a lot of the time, you may have found a better way of doing stuff for everyone. 
I know I was trying to um, a partner who's coming on my podcast um, soon who was talking about how because he is dyslexic, he checks his work um, quite a lot more than the average person. Um, and that has actually led his work to be kind of honed as, as better um, in terms of attention to detail than a lot of other people's work in his firm. And so I think, you know, there's ways to, to sell it as something that is a real positive. Um, and then finally, there's things like your motivations. I always talk about how, um, you know, training contracts are about learning the law and stuff but it can also be to kind of like push a personal agenda so I talked about how I wanted to to grow my um, platform and how having a training contract would help with my advocacy Um, and you know you have to be inside an organization to make change to it often Um, and also things like the fact that um you know, again, I go into special interest mode on certain topics. And if that relates to law, then that's great. And that's a motivation in and of itself. Um, and then finally, you can do things like um, personal branding with neurodivergent advocacy as well. Um, so what I mean by that is kind of linking all of your experiences back to either how you've overcome certain challenges um, or how you've advocated um, for neurodivergent people in each of your roles. Obviously, that's quite easy for me because this kind of last seven months has been all about neurodivergency um, I think there is a way to do it and I think a lot of people who are neurotypical um, and have other protected characteristics will have done um, a similar thing um, and so I wouldn't be scared of using neurodivergency in that way um, that's kind of a long-winded answer but that is probably my advice in terms of kind of talking about neurodivergence in applications and interviews. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I thought I thought it was really good. And hopefully um, some of our listeners who might be going through the process at the moment will be able to yeah. take some of that advice and apply it to their own journey. So thank you for going into that. So I've had discussions with people who are worried about requesting reasonable adjustments because they're concerned yeah. that they won't be viewed favourably by graduate recruitment. And I just wondered if you could say something to those people, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, it, it does happen. I can't lie and say that it doesn't. But generally, I found that getting them to agree to um, and put in the reasonable adjustments is the hard bit um, in terms of, of actually getting them to do things. I haven't found that at the application scheme, um, at the application scheme, at the application um, that reasonable adjustments and requesting them has been looked down on in and of itself. Um, but in terms of, of when that does happen, there's a few things that you can do to kind of mitigate the impact of it. Um, so firstly, I think, you know, you have to deal with your own imposter syndrome and confidence issues first, because you have to know that you aren't getting an unfair advantage this is your legal right and you deserve it and that you are a great applicant. And unfortunately, sometimes you really do have to stand up for yourself during the process. Um, And so it's definitely something to work on first, I think. And then I think there's, you know, that fear of not knowing how to ask, which is often what a lot of people are saying um, when they say they're worried about it not being viewed favourably. And that's why I set up that template on my website um, to help people ask, um, because often it, it's just about being really firm um, and clear with them and concise, um, but sometimes it's not always obvious how to actually ask them. Um, and then kind of 
the question I would say, and this is my biggest advice to people, is if you ask for a reasonable adjustment and they come back to you and say, we don't want you anymore, which I, I don't think would necessarily happen that often in this day and age. But if it did, do you really want to work for them? I always think that their approach to inclusivity at this stage, as in at the application or even the interview stage, is a good test to see how inclusive they are as a whole. You can talk to people. Interviews are two-way processes. It's also about learning whether you want to work at that firm. Um, And so my main piece of advice there would be to actually, if they aren't inclusive, then good you found out really early on you've not had to work for them and you've not had to give two years of your life for a trading contract at a firm that isn't going to value you um and so i think i would always encourage people to ask for stuff um at least something for them to get by on yeah and i think that i think that's so important for um people to think about like do you want to work somewhere that's not going to be um accommodating because it just yeah. it's it's shouts volumes about how it will actually be when you're doing mm. a training contract and two years is a long time to spend with with you know a firm that's that's just not the right fit so yeah yeah and like I said with mine obviously the first time around um I could have taken a message from that I could have taken the hump and said no I'm not doing it Um, But I did provide feedback and they did kind of reform what they did. They were really, really proactive. Everything was put in exactly how I would have imagined it. Um, And so even if it doesn't go right the first time, sometimes afterwards it it can still work out for you. And so if you're worried about that kind of thing, just know that firms do take an interest in getting stuff right. They just sometimes don't know how to do it in the correct way or simple mistakes can be made. Um, and so I wouldn't take kind of, uh, you know, one and one equals two approach. Um, I'd perhaps see first whether you can solve the issue um, and then kind of make your decision on whether you want to work there. Um, so there's a little bit more to it, but I think generally, yeah, like you say, um, it's a good way to see whether they are inclusive. That's, that's a good point. Um, and so what sort of reasonable adjustments can actually help people? I know that extra time is sometimes offered. Is that helpful? It doesn't seem like it would be that helpful in everyone's case. I just wondered what you thought about that. Yeah, um, extra time is is useful for the, the majority of neurodivergent people. And that's because a lot of people have either executive dysfunction or they struggle um, with processing. And that means that they will need longer to uh, kind of absorb the information or with certain neurodivergent conditions, they may need it um, because it will take them longer to um, read um, or write um, one of the two. Um, so the thing is the extra time I think is often used as kind of like a token of reasonable adjustments um, because they don't know any others. And often people ask for it as kind of like a bare minimum um, because they're, they're concerned, like we talked about in the, the previous interview uh, interview uh, question, that they will be looked down upon. There's a really wide range of adjustments that you can 
request that's still reasonable under the Equality Act. Um, you know, just to give an example of what I ask for. Um, so I ask for questions in a written format a few minutes before the interview. Um, so I don't need to process those questions on the spot. Questions quite direct and concise, um, any kind of like social bits. So kind of the introduction and the lunches, if it's in person, I will ask to do that alone. Um, extra time in the breaks um, and also to print off the resources, because sometimes you really have to consider like the small things. Um, and also mitigation for looking back over the case study materials a little bit more, eye contact, um, occasional slurred speech, etc., because of my verbal dyspraxia. Um, now, obviously, this will very much depend on what your condition is um, and also you as an individual, because you don't need to request what dyslexic Joe Bloggs from your assessment centre is asking for. Everyone is different um, and it really needs to be kind of a tailored um, kind of plan for you. And it's quite difficult, I think, to find the balance between mitigation and reasonable adjustments. And unfortunately, it does take quite a lot of trial and error, I've found. And firms aren't always very useful at helping you find that balance. Um, so that's why I kind of came up with the, the reasonable adjustment table that is another resource on my website um, that looks at like it has, I think, over 40 different kind of neurodivergent traits. Um, and then it has the four parts of the uh, assessment center. And then you can just simply look at the examples of reasonable adjustments you could ask for each one. Um, and I also have a table for mitigation, um, which might be quite useful. But I think just generally have conversations with other neurodivergent people, ask what helps them, try and do practice takes with family or friends um, to work out kind of where you what you struggle with and what can't be mitigated um, with reasonable adjustments, but will need just kind of like a formal mitigation, like eye contact um, is quite useful. But generally, I would say that's that's my best advice. Um, but yeah, if anyone ever needs any help with that, I'm always available or alternatively um, try and have a conversation with a recruiter that seems knowledgeable on it um, or another neurodivergent person in the firm who might be willing to help you. The resources that you've mentioned during this episode during this episode sound amazing. Like the table that you just mentioned and the um, the template for asking for reasonable adjustments. So I'll definitely make sure to link those down um, in the description box so people can go and check those out. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you achieved a first class degree in law. So how did you find that experience at university as a neurodiverse student? And what tips would you give neurodiverse students who are currently studying about how they can also excel? Yeah, um, I think there's a few things to, to say here. I mean, if we're talking about my personal experience, I hated it. Um, and that probably sounds melodramatic, but being undiagnosed autistic at university is difficult. Um, and I think most people would also agree with that. Um, I struggled a lot with my mental health. Um, I had what I now realise to be autistic breakdowns and um, meltdowns and everything um, quite often. Um, and that really did put me back in terms of kind of like sticking to a regular study um, routine. But I think the one thing that you have to do as a neurodivergent student is stop trying to do things like everyone else. I used to compare myself to every single neurotypical person in the law school um, and think, you know, why am I not working in the same way as them? 
why does what works for them not work for me? And I would get burned out. I would go off the grid for a month. Um, and I just realized eventually that you just have to do things in your own way. I learn in a different way. I would hyper-focus on certain topics and not on others. And therefore, a lot of the time, I didn't have a choice um, necessarily over what I gave my energy to. Um, and so I think you just really have to, to focus on what works for you. Find the techniques and the study techniques that work for you. Don't beat yourself up. Um, you know, if you have to take a week off to look after your mental health, because that is probably going to be the, one of the most important things. Um, I mean, it is for everyone, but particularly neurodivergent people, because they are um, a lot of the time a bit more susceptible to it due to kind of discrimination and all the other things that we face. Um, but I think, you know, you also have to focus on the positive sides of it and, you know, you might not be able to do stuff in the same way as other people, but likely you'll come up with alternative ways that might even be better. Um, you know, I can do a whole week's work in a day if I'm hyper-focusing. I'm great at research. I'm great at analytical thinking. I'm really holding on to that um, is the one thing I think that really got me through. And then again, like I said in the beginning, it's the idea that inconsistency in grading isn't a failure. Um, you know, I still got a first overall, but that's because of an average. And that's because um, I had some very, very high grades. Like, for example, in some essays, I would get like 89 um, because I would hyper focus or have a special interest on that topic. Um, and then other topics, um, I it just couldn't motivate myself through. It really started to impact my mental health when I tried. Um, and so those ones, I either got like a low two one or sometimes two twos um but you know I, I'm still a magic circle trainee and I think that's the thing to note that you don't have to perform amazingly across the board on every single thing um particularly when you're neurodivergent and you can utilize things like the mitigating circumstances box on applications um to demonstrate that perhaps there was other things going on at that time which impacted your ability to get you know, high two ones in every module because it just doesn't work. Um, and then finally, I think it's just standing up for yourself um, and getting what you need. Um, you know, there's things like the DSA, but in my opinion, they only really go so far. Um, looking after your mental health with things like student counselling, again, only go so far. Um, I think the best thing that you can do is try to kind of work on that internal um, kind of self-doubt um, and that internalized ableism as well, because that's quite a big thing for neurodivergent people that you kind of see it as an unfair advantage. It's not utilize things like mitigating circumstances if you need them. It's not weakness. Um, ask for extra help if you need it. You know, you're not a bad student. You, you will still succeed. Um, you know, you just need to find a way to get through it. Um, and that might not look like everyone else, like I say, but you'll do it in your own way. Um, and you know, I, I've come out of extremely proud of how I got through it and how I coped with everything, even though there were times when it probably looked like I wasn't coping. Um, but yeah, just be kind to yourself. Um, and yeah, re remember you are neurodivergent, you're different. And that's not a bad thing, but it does mean that you, you know, have to look after yourself in different ways. Um, and yeah, that would, that would probably be my top advice. If that was a bit rambly, I don't know. <laughs> No, that was brilliant, honestly. Um, so inspiring. And I'm, I'm sure that you, you provided so much 
um, you know, tips that you can really implement um, to, to those who are neurodivergent at university at the moment. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, and before we let you go, I wondered if you could share where people can connect with you and follow your journey. Um, yeah, so I have a few different platforms that people can use. Um, so I either have my Instagram, which I predominantly post kind of personal insights about what I'm going through, um, support, kind of like general awareness content and stuff like that. You can reach out to me on Instagram. I occasionally miss stuff because it goes on my message requests and executive dysfunction means that I lose track of everything. Um, so it might not be the best place to contact me. Um, if you want to get in contact with me specifically, probably my LinkedIn is the best place to go. Um, if you just type in Amelia Platt and you'll find me. Um, I'm always happy to have a chat. I'm always happy to um, have a virtual coffee um, to go through stuff with people. And sometimes I think it's just nice to chat to other neurodivergent people who've been through similar things. Um, so I'm always up for that. Um, like Miller said, I also have a website, which you can also drop me an email on through that. Um, and that also has our free resources on. Um, but my wider team as well, who you can find on my uh, social media uh, Instagram even um, is always happy to have a chat as well um, they're all really lovely so I would definitely encourage you to get in contact if you need anything um, yeah I don't bite <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave the links again to all of those in the description and um, so people can find them very easily unfortunately <laughs> we have reached the end of our questions um, but thank you so much for being a guest on the show it's been a fantastic episode uh, you've gone into so much helpful detail um and yeah thank you so much again yeah thank you so much for having me on i've really uh, enjoyed my time and uh yeah hopefully that was helpful lovely okay and thank you to all of the listeners as well for tuning in please do um give us a follow on whatever platform that you are using to listen today um and also leave us a review and um yeah leave us some comments in in the uh, in the review box and let you know, let us know if you found this episode helpful thank you everyone and goodbye episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place. Through the University of Law's pro bono program, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. The University of Law will help you reach your ambitions by delivering an outstanding academic and employment-focused experience, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. As soon as you begin your studies with ULaw, you'll learn how to think and act like a lawyer. Whether your aspirations are in law or other fields, their courses will balance academic rigour and practical skills so your career starts from day one. To find out more about the courses they have on offer, just click the link in the description box of the podcast. To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, 
hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.